We're standing in the middle of a huge crowd at the doors of a Bendigo museum. It's Easter and while most Australians are sleeping off chocolate comas, these people are waiting for a very special appearance. No, it's not the Easter Bunny. A clatter of firecrackers erupts and the sound reverberates through people's chests and bounces around their heads. It's loud enough to wake a dragon from its slumber and, within minutes, one has poked its head out from behind the doors of the Golden Dragon Museum. It shakes its head and begins to dance. This is an awe-inspiring sight, but it's also kind of weird, right? This is not China. Most people in this town have ancestors from England, Ireland and Scotland. My name is Tom O'Culligan. And I'm Petrula Boa. For this episode of Voice of Real Australia, we're asking how a parade of Chinese dragons became the biggest event on Bendigo's calendar. And more to the point, where did this city's Chinese ancestors go? I'm Dennis Ohoy. I'm the 23rd generation of the Ohoy family. My grandfather, Louis Duhoy, or Louis Ohoy, he left China, a place called Toisan, which was the district capital of Guangdong province, and the village that he came from was called Walok Li, that's Cantonese, or Hilikun in Mandarin. Bendigo resident Dennis O'Hoy's family have been leaders in the Bendigo Chinese community for years. Today, weeks out from Easter, he's showing us photos of a training session. I had a wonderful experience the other day. A really wonderful experience. On the uh, Sunday, they had the uh, blessing of the Guanyin Temple at 10 o'clock. And of course, they had the lion teams there. Lion teams are dancers in colourful lion costumes who appear around Bendigo and bless businesses. They are small groups compared to the dragon carrier teams seen at Easter. Those can involve as many as 150 people taking turns to carry the dragons, which are over 100 metres long. Cal and Clint, who run the lion team, said, look, come and watch us practice. It brought a tear to my eye because this is what I used to do. 70 years ago, wow. <laughs> and I wrote back and I said, look, I'm so honoured. That's a training session. Uh, oh, to be young again. And what is fantastic about these current generation of Lion teams, they are doing exactly now, in 2022, what I was taught way back in 1940s. Bendigo has had a Chinese community since the 1850s when someone discovered gold in a creek bed and tens and thousands of diggers descended on the sheep runs and forests that ran through the area. Today, only 1% of Bendigo's residents have Chinese ancestry, or less than 1,400 people. That's a drop in the ocean compared to the number who have come and gone here. In 1854 alone, 4,000 Chinese miners came to this gold field. And at times, they've made up a quarter of the population. Many then moved on to other sites up and down Australia's east coast. Dennis's grandfather arrived in 1860 with his wife. He had no intention of wasting his time looking for gold. He was eyeing different riches. And instead of digging for gold, he was quite smart. He was an entrepreneur. He opened several businesses. At his peak, he had at least seven shops, a piggery, three or four market gardens. And then uh, as the business expanded in 1894, 
he brought my father out from the village. My father was Kulan Ohoi, and he was the first son of my grandfather. It was an incredible turn for a man who had originally come to a strange, foreign land to make money to support his mother. But Louis was capable and confident. He became so well-known that China's government asked him to host its emissaries during an 1886 visit to Victoria's goldfields. So in 1887, the imperial court in Beijing granted my grandfather the title of a Mandarin, so uh, he was one of the first to bestow honours. Bendigo has been good to the Ohoys, but the same can't always be said for other Chinese immigrants who have tried to make a go of it in this city. The Chinese, of course, from 1854 were not always welcome. Uh, W.C. Denovan, the town clerk, uh, had organised, and in fact, I've actually got the copies of the original 1854 advertiser, where Denovan uh, decided that July the 4th we'd have an anti-Chinese program. American miners and their supporters gathered in the town's main park, and Denovan allegedly called for Chinese people to be driven off the goldfields. He later denied that's what he meant, but it rattled the authorities. They sent a detachment of mounted troops up from Melbourne to try and keep a lid on things. It is one early example of anti-Chinese sentiment on Australia's goldfields. It is not the only one. Those sorts of ignorant hatreds simmered for years, as seen in an 1850s petition that called for Chinese miners to be expelled at another goldfield. But this meeting are of opinion that the large number of Chinese scattered promiscuously amongst the white miners will lead to serious consequences as the miners look on the Chinese as a treacherous, murderous and robbing race. It would be useless to state in set terms the nuances which we urge against them. It is an oft-told tale. By removing them, you will confer a kindness on us. If not, we shall expel them ourselves. In late 1860, white miners rampaged through Chinese camps in Lamming Flat, now in the New South Wales town of Young. They killed several people and injured many others. Then they did the same thing half a year later, beating, degrading and robbing fleeing Chinese residents. But basically it was classic fear of the unknown. Darren Wright is a Bendigo historian who once oversaw the Bendigo Joss House Temple. Chinese were different. A lot of people that were on the gold fields had probably come from backgrounds that had never seen a Chinese person in their lives. If you'd come from sort of the highlands of Scotland or, or basically Yorkshire or you know, other places in Europe, there are very, very few Chinese there. And of course, you fear what you don't understand because most of them didn't speak English either. The Joss House Temple was opened in the 1870s and is dedicated to Guan Di, the god of war and prosperity. It's painted bright red and is one of the few remaining buildings of its kind in the country. Worshippers still go there today. Now, the government of the day did come up with some rather interesting rules and regulations to try and dissuade the vast waves of Chinese coming to this country and Basically, yes, you didn't have the same opportunities as the other miners. Chinese miners were forced to dock in South Australia and walk to Victoria's goldfields to avoid exorbitant landing taxes. You weren't allowed to work the fresh goldfields. You could only work the tailings and the wastelands and the areas the government had identified there's no gold there anyway. But they did have supporters, including Bendigo authorities, 
who liked them because they largely kept to themselves and paid their license fees on time. To them, Chinese miners weren't violent criminals coming here to steal jobs. They were good people. And as time went on, it became clear Chinese migrants cared deeply about the communities that they had settled in. By 1870, those migrants had begun raising money for Bendigo's hospital and asylum, and running parades like the ones that still take place in the city every Easter. What do you think made Louis O'Hoy so interested in, in being part of the community? He realised that to be successful, you had to integrate into the community. And as I said, the Benigo Hospital and the Benigo Silent Asylum uh, Hospital, they did look after Indigenous Chinese. And this is why the Chinese procession started to raise money to look after these. So grandfather and father were very quick to be part of the community and they were very generous with their time and, of course, money. So did a host of other leaders. Their family names are still prominent in Bendigo today. If only more of them had been allowed to put down roots in Australia. Many wanted to. Successive governments had different ideas. There are many Wongs in the Chinese community, but I have to say... And I'm sure that the Honourable Member for Balaclava will not mind me doing so, that two Wongs do not make a white. This xenophobic remark could sum up 20th century Australian attitudes towards Chinese immigrants and their descendants. It was said by then-Immigration Minister Arthur Corwell on the floor of Parliament in 1947. Corwell later complained his meaning was being taken out of context. Dennis loves that one of Australia's highest level politicians is now a Wong, Penny Wong, and wonders what Corwell would have made of that. Dennis is writing a book on his family. One of the chapters is titled Two Wongs Don't Make a White. His mother was among many women unable to move with their husbands because of the white Australia policy. And his uncle, an Australian born man who wanted to visit Asia, needed a certificate to re enter the country. You couldn't bring your wives out. So obviously if you couldn't bring your wife out, you couldn't have a next generation. And virtually, from a population of four and a half to 5,000 Chinese, by the time we get to the 1960s, there were very few Chinese families left. A lot of Chinese descendant families. Dennis remembers knocking on Bendigo doors in 1968, before the white Australia policy was abolished trying to find Chinese descendants willing to help carry dragons. He and fellow Chinese descendant Russell Jack knocked on a lot of doors. Our numbers of Chinese and Chinese descent was getting less and less, and because of the new dragon coming, we had to encourage people to join the Chinese Association. Well, Russell and I would go and knock on people's doors and say, look, we'd like you to join the Chinese Association. And the question nine times out of ten was, uh, why have you come here? We don't have Chinese descent. I said, no, well, you, because my dad and my grandfather knew all the people and I knew them, I'd say, oh, look, your grandfather was Chinese. They'd say, no, we don't talk about that. Decades after the abolition of the white Australia policy, Arthur Caldwell's racist legacy persevered. I and most Australians want our immigration policy policy radically reviewed and that of multiculturalism abolished. Yeah, yeah. I believe we are in danger of being swamped by Asians. 
That's Pauline Hanson speaking during an infamous and generally reviled 1996 parliamentary speech. Arthur Caldwell was a great Australian and Labor leader, and it is a pity that there are not men of his stature sitting on the opposition benches today. Hanson's arrival in Australian Parliament back in 1996 was part of a fresh wave of racial tension across the nation. In Bendigo, someone wrote xenophobic slurs on a well-known Chinese descendant's fence. Russell is highly respected. He's a leader of the Chinese community and a great sportsman. Uh, some people had actually put on his fence, keep Australia white. His family said, look, uh, let's get rid of the sign. They said, no, I want people to see it. It's, there's the element still there. And I think... That was very courageous of Russell to state that. There's no denying that racism against Chinese and Asian Australians is still seen in this country today. But Dennis says in his experience, Bendigonians have come together to embrace their city's multicultural roots. His father sold Bendigo's council a block of land in the middle of town that was formerly Chinatown. Today, the site is the home of the Golden Dragon Museum and Chinese-inspired gardens. It's an amazing legacy and deeply loved by Bendigo's residents, who are currently lobbying governments for the money to make it even better. But it's not the only place you can find the mark Chinese people have left. The other is six feet underground. The district coroner held an inquest yesterday at the junction in McRae Street on the body of a Chinaman named R. Kim, who was found dead in his bed on the morning of the preceding day. An inquest was held yesterday morning by the district coroner at the Loggerheads Motel, Myers Flat, on the body of a Chinaman named R. Hen, 46 years of age. Dr. Atkinson, who made the post-mortem examination, stated that he'd never seen a body more emaciated than that of the deceased. The man struck the deceased three or four blows with his fist, who stooped down and cried out, when another man struck him over the face with a stick. His face was covered in blood, who came by his death on Friday evening last, in consequence of a cart in which he had been riding, being upset over a stump. The lungs were in an advanced stage of inflammation from influenza. Deceased refused to go to the hospital. When he was thrown out and killed on the spot. The jury returned a verdict according to the medical opinion. Pulmonary consumption. Accidental death from severe injuries inflicted on his person in falling down a hole 16 feet deep, the result of a blow inflicted on him by one Janssen, alias Swedish Charlie. These are accounts of deaths of Chinese miners from local paper The Bendigo Advertiser. This city was a dangerous place in the 19th century. You might get sick from living in extreme heat or cold. You might get injured in a mining accident. Or you might be the victim of a violent robbery outside your tent, as Chung Wing was when some guy called Swedish Charlie pushed him into an open shaft back in 1856. The fall broke Chung Wing's spine and he died in extreme pain. Swedish Charlie legged it and two of his accomplices faced court. Chung Wing's broken body probably found its way to a Bendigo cemetery, but that cemetery was not necessarily his final resting place. Sometimes, bodies were dug back up, according to historian Darren Wright. 
there was a couple of very wealthy merchants in Australia that actually had sort of a, like a benevolent fund which would allow relatives to get their remains sent back home. It sometimes didn't happen, you know, particularly quickly. Um, I've read accounts of remains being dug up a year later and repatriated, 10 years, 20 years. I found one that was 60 years later. But um, you would have a European gentleman with a few Chinese in his employee that would go around, you know, country cemeteries and basically ensure that this process was done. The first business was the opening of the grave. And as soon as this was done, a Mr. Kindle, who, in company with four deputed Chinamen, went down and opened the coffin. This is a newspaper account from 1867. A journalist was about to watch a bloke rise from the grave. Kwan Yung had died 14 months earlier from pneumonia, possibly linked to a pre-existing medical condition and a decision that in retrospect might not have been a good one. Like many Chinese miners of the period, Kwan Yung smoked a lot of opium and had decided, for the sake of his health, to go cold turkey. His death had been needless, a doctor had said following an autopsy. The miner would have lived if he had sought out proper medical help, but instead he had passed away in a goldfields tent. He was not yet 20 years old. The Chinaman had been buried in a complete suit of clothes of Chinese fashion, including a Chinese hat and a pair of boots. Every particle of flesh had disappeared, but the skeleton and the clothes were quite perfect. Mr Kindle first took up the skull, then the vertebrae and the ribs, and then the arms and hands. The Chinese, of whom there were about a dozen around the grave, very carefully counted the bones and were quite delighted that none were missing, not even a tooth, every one of which were firmly set in the jaws. The late autumn sunshine beat down on the gathering. Incense burned. Kwan Yung's legs and feet were handed up to the surface and carefully cleaned. The whole skeleton was placed in a small oblong box, about four feet long, inside which had been placed a quantity of paper with a lot of mysterious signs stamped upon them, and a pack of Chinese playing cards in case the deceased wished to amuse himself on his voyage to China. Kwan Yung's body was one of many being gathered in the Bendigo district that autumn. The box, with its strange contents, was then taken to the Chinese camp at Epsom, where there are some dozen more skeletons ready for exportation, one or two of which, having the flesh upon them, are preserved in gin. This account is by a white journalist, and it gets a few things wrong. At one point, he suggests incense is being burnt to... Keep away his satanic majesty. In some of those interpretations, uh, he was obviously a very keen observer, but whether his facts about some of the meetings... For instance, he, it's interesting, he mentions the playing cards. This is Lee McKinnon, a historian at the Golden Dragon Museum. We meet at a cemetery in the Bendigo suburb of White Hills. Playing cards are actually a, a way of warding off evil, so they're not meant for the... Like that <laughs> r- reporter said, for the amusement of the deceased sort of thing. Frustratingly... Non-Chinese sources are often the only written records that we have of Chinese people on early Australian goldfields, so it can be hard to get a read on how they saw the world. Lee is showing me the Chinese graves at White Hills, 
to learn more about Kuan Yung's journey after death. Ancient tombstones bearing Mandarin and Cantonese lettering dot this part of the cemetery. Between them are slight mounds of hard clay earth that suggest more bodies. The sun barely cuts through the cold air on this late autumn day. No incense is burning, but it has been recently. You can see the spent incense in buckets of sand. How many Chinese people are in this part of the cemetery and how many of them would have been exhumed? Right. So it could be up to a thousand. So records can sometimes be a bit, uh, you know, incomplete for those earlier years. And it has been uh, estimated by another researcher, Carol Holsworth, that perhaps 10% were exhumed. Okay. So majority are still most likely laying where they were laid to rest, but uh, perhaps about yeah, one in ten uh, are believed to have been removed for reburial in their home village. And how many of the people who didn't get exhumed would you say they'd have relatives who would have very much liked for their, a person to come home? I would say most of them, probably all of them, would have, it would have been the ideal. I've got to say, this is not the best place to bury your dead. For a start, it's right near the Bendigo Creek. Back when Kwan Yung died, it would have been prone to flooding, and it would not just have been water sloshing around. It was originally probably the worst part of the cemetery, down near the Bendigo Creek, just opposite the road here. And along uh, the road over there, the other road is Long Gully, and also where Ironbark Gully feeds into that, just a little bit further up. And this is why it was actually originally called the Junction Cemetery, because it's the junction of, of Long Gully Creek and, and Bendigo Creek. Now, that means it's more likely to be flood-prone. In that time period, it means it's also more likely to be carrying a lot of mining waste sludge, basically. Uh, I think Bendigo was referred to as sludge town at one stage. And, and we know that the sludge did encroach on the Chinese section a number of times. So Someday, we might tell you some disgusting stories about the toxic mining waste that washed through this creek bed in the 19th century. A lot terribly good feng shui here as well. So, uh, oh, OK. A good uh, site for a burial place would be up on a hill and facing flowing water. Well, I guess it is near the flowing water of sorts. Yeah, of sorts. Flowing but sludge, anyway. Sludge, yeah. But, yes, it would have been better placed up on the, the top there as a, a good burial site. If you could ask the Chinese people buried here, they would probably tell you that they wanted to be buried a long way away. But that cost money, and getting a dead person back home was extremely complicated. Some people joined fraternal organisations of fellow Chinese miners, which could pull together the money needed to get bodies home. So the groups that would pay for that were often society groups, so think of them almost like a friendly society, or if you're in a health fund, it's a bit like that, that sometimes you'd be part of that that club, and uh, by paying memberships, then you would uh, have that, that aspect of your afterlife care, so to speak, looked after as, as well as uh, when you're alive. After being exhumed, Kwan Yung's body would have been moved 150 kilometres down to Melbourne. And that's where a man called Lo Kong Meng, uh, who was a very important community leader of the, the Chinese in Victoria, apparently he was one of the main figures in organising the transport from there. So putting onto a, a cargo ship uh, that would be bound ultimately to Hong Kong 
There were various institutions in Hong Kong that handled the repatriation of bodies from overseas, and then from there would make its way to their individual home villages. The system relied on each body coming with a very detailed set of instructions. Some of the people that were buried were buried with their details, their full Chinese name, their home village name, on a brick that was put in the coffin with them. So in the case that they were dug up, that there'd be no doubt about where they should be headed. So it's also likely that some of these unknown burials here, they may have identifying information buried with them for that, that time that perhaps never came that they would be returned to their home. Of course, fate has a funny way of dealing with the best laid plans. Lee tells me a story about a ship that sailed from New Zealand in 1903. It was carrying hundreds of Chinese remains before it sunk off the coast. Devastated friends and family grieved all over again. Nearly all of the bodies remain at the bottom of the sea, but 12 washed ashore, where Maori people buried the bodies and paid their respects. There's a memorial there now, You might assume that the dead Chinese miners in this Bendigo cemetery are forgotten. But Lee says that is simply not the case. He points to the base of a burning tower, a narrow brick chimney that rises out of the ground among the tombstones. There's a bowl of fruit there. It's been left as an offering. Dennis O'Hoy, the descendant you heard from earlier, is among the locals who pop by on a regular basis. So what I have to do in January, March and April, or rather August, I have to go out there and take food. It's chicken, pork, wine, biscuits, and all those things, and just, so even though I'm I'm part Anglican, but I'm also part Buddhist because of my parents, tradition, I have to go out there and I have to honour the dead by burning just papers and just sticks. Chinese descendants leave fruit at the burning tower in the same way that those from other cultural backgrounds might leave flowers. It's interesting that I've I've heard a few Chinese Australian people tell the same story about Europeans saying, why do you leave fruit for the the dead if they can't eat them? And they say, well, why do you leave flowers at the grave if they can't smell them? Mm. And uh, so again, it's a a sign of respect. It's a sign of perhaps giving something to the deceased. And that's also why things are burnt at the burning tower. So it's not a cremation tower, that's not the meaning of that, that the burning tower is a place where you burn, for instance, what's called sometimes hell money or heaven money. It's kind of fake money that's uh, created especially for burning at a place like that. And the idea of, of burning these offerings, and sometimes there are modern day ones of computers made out of paper and things like that, so that you burn those and by burning them, you sort of translate them into the next realm. And it's just as well that there are people around here willing to honour Chinese miners. Most of the dead here don't have relatives in Australia. At least, not relatives that the city's Chinese descendants know of. So their remains lie beneath alien soil, ready, when we are, to rediscover their stories.
it for this episode of Voice of Real Australia. Thank you for listening. If you're ever in Bendigo, be sure to catch one of the trams through the city centre. Dennis O'Hoy helped save them in the 1970s. He was part of a group that broke into a tram depot late one night and welded lumps of iron to the tracks before starting a blockade. We'd like to thank him for sharing his time and knowledge for this podcast, as well as historians Darren Wright and Lee McKinnon. Bendigo advertiser journalist Tom O'Callaghan writes a semi-regular history series on his hometown called What Happened? Pachula Boer is part of ACM's Google News editorial trainee program. She is based at the Bendigo Advertiser. To hear more stories, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. If you like the podcast, please tell your friends and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It helps new people find us. If you'd like to share your story, email voice at ostcommunitymedia.com.au. That's voice at ost, A-U-S-T, communitymedia.com.au. Find us on Instagram at Voice of Real Australia for photos and more from the show. Voice of Real Australia comes from Bendigo this week on Jar Jar Wurrung Country. It's produced by me, Lara Corrigan and Tom Melville. Special thanks this week go to Peter Kennedy, Steve Evans, Scott Bevan, Gail Tomlinson and everyone who provided their voices, including my dad. The audio of Pauline Hansen's maiden speech was provided by the Commonwealth under a Creative Commons 3.0 licence. Our editor is Emily Sweet. This is an ACM podcast. <laughs>